Good morning. Remember this from last time, last week? The tombstones. And uh, remember we uh, finished with this thought last week, there's something better with which Solomon might occupy himself in this life than to try to figure out the answer to death, the answer to uh, trying to pursue wisdom, the answer to trying to pursue uh, pleasure in order to try to find out what to do with this life. So as we're thinking about that, uh, this is what we're going to do first of all, just wrap up what we were on last week and uh, close out chapter two and then move on into the new handout today in chapter three. And in this, the idea is that it is better for a person to prepare for eternity than to immerse oneself in preparing for this life alone. That's really the bottom line of what we're learning as we go through Ecclesiastes and are looking here at uh, Ecclesiastes 2 and wrapping it up. You see, Solomon knows that there's something more that he can give his life to. He is fully aware of all that he's lost by the way that he's lived. Remember that if this man is saved, if he really knows the Lord, and he has departed from serving him, there's a tremendous amount of guilt weighing on his soul. He knows what he should have done. He knows what he's done wrong. And uh, that's got to have uh, created a tremendous amount of tension in his life. He's fully aware of the joy he once had when he loved the Lord, followed the Lord, obeyed the Lord. And he knows what he's lost in pursuing the idols and the gods that his many wives have drawn him away to. You see, fellowship with God, as we talk about that, that involves a joy and a peace and a security that each and every one of us know as long as we're walking in his will. How do we break that? When, when we have that kind of relationship to God, what does it take to break it? Sin. Now, if we've broken that fellowship with God that way, what's the remedy? Confession. We have to take ourselves to the cross. We have to uh, confess our sin. And God forgives us our sins, right? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin breaks that fellowship. So that when we don't have the joy, the peace, the love in our lives that we ought to have as believers, that's got to be one of the chief causes right away that we need to consider, that there's sin in our lives, that in some way we've disobeyed God. And, you know, Solomon being a son of David had quite a legacy, didn't he? I mean, think of that. A father who wrote those psalms, a father who was looked at as being a friend of God, a father, yes, who had problems, a father who had himself disobeyed God, a father because of his disobedience who had had this uh, uh, dysfunctional family around him. Solomon was able to observe that and see that. So he knows better from a number of different vantage points. He knows better from the word. He knows better from his relationship to God. He knows better in having watched his father go through some of these times of trial when he was disobedient to God and the results that came. So like his father, you would expect that he would pray the prayer that his father left for him to read and to use in the service of the temple in Psalm 51, 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. And this is what I believe that Solomon is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. I believe this tells us the purpose of this book. He is in this book confessing what he has done, where he went, how he walked away from the Lord. He's going to explain how he comes back to the Lord through these very difficult lessons. And his prayer is to not only himself be restored, but he, that he might be used by God to teach transgressors the ways of the Lord so that sinners might be converted. That's, you know, Walt Kaiser says of the book of Ecclesiastes that it ought to be called euangelistes, which is the Greek for evangelism, evangelist. Instead of the preacher, Ecclesiastes, call it euangelistes, the evangelist, because the purpose of this book is to do what David, his father, wrote about, being restored by God, having confessed sin and being restored, then to use that as a means of reaching out to others. Solomon, you know, had a very privileged life. Isn't it hard for us to kind of identify with him? Because of all of his wealth, all of his wisdom, uh, all of his power, raised in a privileged family, raised in the palace, and uh, where in the world would he ever get the opportunity to know what in the world goes on in the gutter? What about leper colonies? Did he ever visit a leper colony? Did he ever spend the night in a beggar's shack or shanty? Does he have any background or experience in this? He does not. And that's part of the reasons he's struggling. Because, you see, in that privileged position, when suddenly things go wrong, you think with all that you have that certainly you shouldn't have to go through any trouble or problems. You should be able to pay your way out or do something or hide from it at least. And uh, all of a sudden he's faced with the difficulties of life that actually demonstrate that he is no better or no different than the leper, than the beggar, than any individual in his entire kingdom. Don? All right, good point. Have to learn how to receive forgiveness. Learn how to receive the ministry of others to you. That's right, we do. Absolutely. So how is it he can understand this contrast? Well, let's compare it with the prodigal son. What do we know about the prodigal son? Okay, he got his inheritance, and he left home, and what did he do? He squandered it all, spent it all. Then what did he do? Before he came back, he lived in a pig pen. He had to feed hogs. And as a Jew, to feed hogs, I mean, these were unclean animals. And so he found out what life was really like, didn't he? He had to work for a living for a change. He had to work hard. He had one of those dirty jobs to handle, right? From the Discovery Channel, world's dirtiest jobs. Some of those you look at and you say, no way. <laughs> right, he was slopping the hogs. Now, you see, that's probably part of what's involved Solomon. He didn't go off and have to get a job the way the prodigal son did. 
but the very fact that he lost that security and everything else and everything around him, I imagine the more he was around it, began to bother him all the more. When you lose your joy of life and you uh, are afraid of death and think that uh, you're near the end of your life, remember, he's an old man now. He knows his time is coming. And uh, suddenly, wealth can't buy happiness. And his position and power influence can't buy him security. And he's got thousands of wives and concubines to try to take care of. And he has family, he has children, and the burdens of all that. And he's just unable to measure up. He's unable. All right? Under the sun is a phrase that occurs throughout this passage several times. It builds in a crescendo, and it also is found in, in, the, in the section with this also is vanity. I've got them kind of highlighted in my Bible. I've got a kind of a blue color code for under the sun, and it is in 2.11 and 2.17. It's in 2.18, 2.19, Notice how all of a sudden it seems to be everywhere. Each verse has this. And then this also is vanity occurs over and over again. We see it there at the end of verse 19. We see it at verse 21. We see it at verse 23. We see it at the conclusion of chapter 2 in verse 26. This is vanity. It closes each of the subsections. So that verses 12 to 17 in chapter 2 contrast wisdom and folly. They contrast light and darkness. They contrast life and death because these are the extremes that Solomon is considering and is looking at. Verses 18 to 23 contrast rest and labor. And that's the idea that God's given us work to do, but he's also given a time of rest. And Solomon admits to bringing his own heart then into this condition that he finds himself in. He is the one who has caused himself despair. If you look at this, he says, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, there in verse 18. And then in uh, verse 20, therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. He's the one. He brought himself into this position of despair. He has obsessed over his life's work, a workaholic. Remember all those things he listed in chapter 1 and the early part of chapter 2? All the things he'd done, the parks he'd established, the buildings he had built, the ponds and pools and reservoirs he had built, uh, the cities and city walls, and all of the things he'd done. He built the temple, he built a palace. All of these things he has obsessed over his life's work, and he gets to the end of his life and finds out that work is not the satisfaction and that his accomplishments are not worth a whole lot because his accomplishments are as temporary as he is. If his son Rehoboam gets hold of it all, it's all going to fall apart. He suddenly realizes that. This is a lesson for us. Into what do we pour all of our energies and our lives? To things that are temporary or things that are more permanent? Do we get our priorities set right? 
You see, Solomon does not fret over the kingdom or its wealth or power. He stresses over his own reputation and self-image. If you look at this very carefully, all the way through, it's really the big I problem he has. All right? The middle letter of sin, I. He's more worried about himself. My work I've done has gone to nothing. My labor is not going to last. My reputation I build is going to be destroyed by those who follow me. This is selfishness. It's greed. And this is something we all need to really look at carefully. We mentioned it briefly last week that uh, when we're thinking about uh, what we're attempting to do with our lives, is it really to build ourselves up, to make a name for ourselves, to leave something behind that has our name attached to it because it's all about us? Right? That's what we have to think about. It's really hard. It's really difficult. It makes me really admire some of those writers of old, for example, in the church who decided that uh, they, they weren't going to even write books in their own name. They used a pen name, and no one knows today even or remembers much about who in the world they were because they wrote under a pen name. Because it was not for their glory or for pro propagating their name, but for propagating the truth. Right? In many of the Bible translations, there's no names given as to who did it. That's right. It, it is amazing when we look at those things. Solomon's spiritual journey, remember, this is what this book is all about, took him from sleepless nights to the restful slumber of the righteous. And as you go through this, you look at verse 23, because all his days, is ta uh, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. And then he moves on. And notice in verse 26, for to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy, joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. There's a contrast here in what the sinner works for and what the righteous works for. And the one who is righteous and his labor is good and is on, uh, to the glory of God, he will enjoy that life and he will have the slumber of the righteous. It could be about this time that Solomon may have penned Psalm 127. Think about the words he wrote. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Contrast that with these words in chapter two. They fit. It's the same type of truths that he is sharing with us here in Psalm 127 and what we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And so, of course, the last word here we have got to ask ourselves, does your job make you a workaholic? Tell me, does your job make you a workaholic? Okay, someone said yes, someone said no. Let's find out why, okay? Tom, you said yes. I enjoy the work while I'm there. It's in that brain... Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Over here, we had someone who said differently. Tim. I said yes. Okay. Now, let's back up a bit and think. We've got two answers here, and there's 
uh, points to each of them that are right. But let's boil it down further. What drives us in our jobs? Is it really the job? Okay, sometimes it's responsibility. Okay, Shirley? I think it's the inside pride an individual has in performance, whatever oh. the performance. Okay. And if it's a very positive thing for you, uh, you really need to be careful when you become All right. The workaholic aspect really doesn't come from the responsibilities or the requirements of the job so much, does it? Because those. You know, it's, it's like getting up in the morning and if you're going to eat, you have to go to the stove or go to the cupboard or do something, right? And we don't think of ourselves as being workaholics to go get food. And so we have a job, there's requirements to the job, but what makes us go over the line to be a workaholic, surely is suggesting here that it may be more our own pride, right? Yes? Okay. All right. Exactly. Like, who are you, or how you identify, we identify ourselves off of what we do, what level we're at, what our are. Exactly. We want to know what have you done? Who are you? What have you done? And we become part of that, and it's really for self protection, maintaining our own reputation, etc., in many ways. Butch, you had something. That's right. Yes. But it's also sobering to realize, I think when you get this question of work, you go back a few hundred years, like the founding fathers, kind of what was the work ethic back then? They routinely work like 12 hour days. Right. We don't routinely work 12 hour days. We, we still consider ourselves workaholics. <laughs> what was the difference in motivation? Right. You know? yep. I think the difference is. That uh, and, and you can comment on this if you wish, but I think in the uh, older days when you had those men working 12-hour days, uh, they did it in such a fashion that they knew what their priorities were. And they didn't willingly sacrifice their families for their jobs. Whereas today we have men who may only work 8 hours or, tw or 10 or even 12 hours a day, but who willingly make choices that sacrifice their families. And so there's the point where we start to have to think about where our priorities are. Yeah, I think that one of the things here, you've all brought these up, and, and there's a number of factors involved. This is not an easy, cut and dried, black and white issue, because there are matters of responsibility, authority, accountability. There are responsibilities to the Lord himself that we do our jobs well, and that we have a testimony to maintain for the Lord, not necessarily for ourselves, but for the Lord himself. So there are different factors and different motivations that are involved, but we all have to be on guard for the time where we reach that edge where instead of really doing it for the glory of God, instead of really doing it because of the responsibilities we have or the job requirements, we are actually really doing it only for ourselves to maintain a reputation or to 
solve, have our pride or to try to leave something behind that is, uh, we think, greater than ourselves that will make people of the next generation remember who we are. That's the line when we cross over. It becomes really true workaholicalism, all right? Because we're doing it for our, our own selves. Linda, you had a comment? Addicted to work. Addicted to it. Yeah. For ourselves, for the pleasure it gives us. Rather than for necessarily its accomplishments. Sometimes it's addiction to the praise we receive and recognition we receive from that job that we're addicted to. All right. How can you balance work and recreation to the glory of God? Anyone? How can we balance these two? Yes, Daya. Pray for wisdom. Okay, pray for wisdom. Good start. Excellent. What else? Yes. Okay, so know your priorities ahead of time. List your priorities. Identify your priorities. Home, family, God, all of those things. Did I miss one? Okay, good. All right. Anyone else? Yes, Dwayne. Okay. All right, good. Have someone in your life that holds you accountable. For many of us, that's our wives. <laughs> and for some of the wives, it's their husbands. That's good. But even then, it's good to have others around you, too. That uh, other men in your life as a man, uh, other women in your life as a woman that, that will say to you, uh, you know, have you really thought about this carefully? We need that type of input. We need that type of accountability. That's one of the ways we balance. Okay, other ideas. We've got some excellent ones so far. Dinah? Sometimes it just boils down, as Dinah says, to we have to make the choice. We know what is right. We know what we should do. We know how to do it. It's just tough to make that final choice and make it the right one. Cora?
Okay, we need to learn how to do things to the glory of God. Uh, we need to realize that everything we do is involved in that, right? No matter what we do. And uh, it's not, sometimes the, re, the way we get ourselves into this uh, off-kilter balance in our lives where we're just not there, we're not doing things the right way, or we have this uh, self-centeredness, or we're being a workaholic, or we're not balancing the priorities in our life rightly, Sometimes that's because we start categorizing the things in our lives and saying, well, this brings greater glory to God if I do this as opposed to this. Let's take an example. It's greater glory to God if I come and teach the class on Ecclesiastes than if I make certain that I spend some quality time with my wife. Now, you see, that's out of kilter. Because how can a person teach the word of God if they're not spending the time they ought with their families? I mean, look at the qualifications for godly men and women in scripture. And what does it include? Those who do not take care of their own families are worse than infidels. It doesn't matter what position or role they have in the church. It doesn't matter what name they have or what they've done. When that's out of balance, then God's not being glorified. Correct? Right? Amen. And that's the hard thing. That's when we have to realize that. That's when we have to understand that. That's why I, I'm thankful I have a, a wife who can remind me. <laughs> like she did this last week. She walked in and says, when's the last time you moved out of that chair? <laughs> oh, yes. Just one more paper to <laughs> that's right and it's it's been wonderful I'll tell you but it's balance right it's balance it's not not doing the work it's not being it's not becoming uncommitted to work it's not becoming uncommitted to family it's how to balance all of those things and we're juggling these things every day and that's why we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes is because every one of us in here have to face those kind of issues and every one of us want to know where do I get the wisdom and every one of us want to know how does someone else handle this? And can I learn from what they've learned as to how to handle it? And here we have one example of the wisest man on earth in his day and how he struggled with it. So we can't use the excuses, oh, well, I'm just not smart enough. That's why I'm struggling. Well, how come the world's smartest man was still struggling with it? You know, It's not because of our intelligence or lack of intelligence. It's because we are human beings. And that's why we're going to face these issues and these problems. All right? Three basic principles learned out of chapter 2. Man is not good. In other words, we're sinners. All right? Our goodness that we have is because of the goodness we have in God. Our righteousness is his righteousness. All of our other righteousnesses are filthy rags. They are nothing. God is the giver. He's the one who provides. We may think that we're the ones doing the work of providing for our families, but God's the one who has given us the health and the opportunity to do it. And everything has come from his hand, and there's no enjoyment of anything in life apart from God. No matter what we're talking about. Work, money, recreation, uh, homes, education, anything you can think of. Without God, there is no true enjoyment of it. 
Oh, it, it, there's some happiness. There's some joy it brings. We watch a lot of happy unbelievers out there, right? And yet it does not last and it's not permanent. And uh, we need to understand these three basic principles. Part of that bill is a lot of people don't know the Lord think that there's nothing afterwards. So you might as well That's right. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's only this life they have. Where that's part of what Solomon is trying to point to here. He's saying, you know, the unbeliever says this, that eat, drink, uh, tomorrow we die. Enjoy life for what it is now. And what Solomon is saying, yes, life is to be enjoyed, but to be enjoyed with God and with the knowledge of what God has given because it's but the beginning of a long period of time you're going to be spent with God. All right? So in verse 24, there's no good man that he eat and drink and his soul see good in its labor. Chapter 8, verse 15, there is no good for man beneath the sun except to eat and to drink and to be happy. You look at these, this is exactly what Tom was talking about here. What makes the difference between this and hedonism? What makes the difference between this and uh, the idea of, of just enjoying everything? Yes, AJ. Right. So we're supposed to find every pleasure, every enjoyment in life, we're supposed to love it not for the sake of that object, but for the sake of the giver of that object. Okay, excellent. And that's really, I think, what Solomon is saying. All the way through this book, he's saying exactly what Augustine said. He said it first. Solomon, Solomon said it first. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. So where did Augustine get it? Probably from Solomon, right? <laughs> Okay, in verse 26 of chapter 2, Solomon contrasts the gifts God gives to good men and to sinners, and notice that they're very different. There's a knowledge here of a difference, a distinction between believer and unbeliever, not just in who they are, but what God gives them, and also in how they enjoy life. One is enjoying it without God, and that's just for the pure pleasure of it. And the other is enjoying it with God, and it's, for, it's in thankfulness for what God has given, an awareness that it came from God. That's not the product of our own labor. H.C. Leupold says, what the author seeks to indicate is merely this, that even the simplest forms of enjoyment cannot be made to yield satisfaction by man himself. When we enjoy it just by ourselves, we cannot truly enjoy it the way it was intended to be enjoyed. Uh, I was trying to think of an illustration of this, and I could not, my mind couldn't come to an illustration that I was satisfied with on how this, this works. But the idea is you can have something and enjoy it. We can go out here in the hills and mountains and walk around, enjoy the nice spring weather, the sunshine, listen to the birds, look at the, the fresh new flowers and the green grass. And we can enjoy it. Even an unbeliever can enjoy that. But how much more enjoyment is there for the believer who is able with that to meditate on the fact that these are the creation of a holy, a righteous, a wise, and a mighty God. And that 
like Jesus said, that uh, the glory of Solomon pales in comparison to the glory of the lilies of the field that God himself has, has clothed. Think of that. And so when we're contemplating that and looking at that, our enjoyment is going to a greater extent and is a far greater enjoyment of it than we could ever have of the exact same situation as an unbeliever or as doing it without God. And sometimes we as believers get so away from our obedience to God that we become dulled to the greater joys of our lives around us. When we're disobedient, suddenly the joys of being married aren't so great. The joys of having children aren't so great. The joys of having a home and security are not so great because our priorities change and our view, our perspective changes and the luster goes off of all those wonderful things because the enjoyment has come down a notch. There's still a joy there. There's still an enjoyment of it, but it's not the same as when we have that greater joy when we enjoy them with the knowledge of God's gift and his given. Enjoyment of life is a gift from God. Life in this world can only have significance and provide enjoyment to the believer. And our question here, what hinders them? This is the question. What hinders a person from fully appreciating the good things in life under the sun? What hinders us? Help me out here. Not appreciating who gave them to us. Not appreciating who gave them to us. Okay, what else? Disobedience to God hinders our enjoyment of it. What else? Sometimes what? Okay, the sin has got, I didn't get the first part of what you said earlier. Uh, the sin does what? The sin, if we, if we sin, get to get the Okay, good. That's what I missed. Okay, what she is saying there is the sin that we committed in order to get something good, then itself has tarnished it. Has tarnished it. Okay? Yes? All right, idolatry, uh, replacing God, the place of God in our lives with that thing that we're enjoying. All right? Yes, Coral. It seems to me that every good thing that God created, like it was intended to be shared with him and to have that knowledge that he gave to us. And so it's just totally incomplete if we don't have that. Okay. A lack of knowledge of God, a lack of awareness of him in that. Okay, all these things can... Uh, cause us to be unable to fully appreciate what we have. If we're not in the word, just, just our ignorance of the word sometimes produces that lack of enjoyment, whereas we knew a little bit more, if we'd read a little bit more of the word of God, we might have found that text where God addresses that specific thing and that specific event or that person or that uh, situation that suddenly... We have a new appreciation of it because we have read the word and what God says about it. And it just opens up everything to us. So we need to keep ourselves in the word. What about prayerlessness? Doesn't prayerlessness also hinder our fully appreciating the good things in life under the, under the sun? What do we demonstrate by prayerlessness? We're not communicating with God. 
Uh, say Self it again, Mike. Self-sufficiency. We don't feel necessary to even ask God, right? We don't need him. We don't need him. What else? Okay, a poor attitude, a bad attitude. A lack of gratitude. A lack of gratitude. A lack of gratitude for the things we have. Prayerlessness is... Go ahead. Okay, we're not serious about life. We're, we're not being aware of exactly... We're not seeing who we are, are we? We don't really have a good picture of ourselves. If we're prayerless, we, it's what we've said here several different ways, that uh, we, we feel self-sufficient. But we don't really understand how limited we are. And prayerlessness just says we're, we're just willing to go on our own. We don't have understanding it. Twice on Friday in, in uh, two different locations by two different men, I heard a certain phrase used, a certain sentence. One was by Jack Hughes at Calvary Bible Church where the uh, Masters Academy International was having their symposiums, and I was there all day for that. And uh, Jack Hughes in one of his sessions said, that the young men in the uh, seminary, young men in pastoring, young men in training for the pastorate around the world, different places, they, they really don't know what they don't know. <laughs> and then we went to the spring banquet for the seminary out at the Reagan Library that night, and Jerry Bridges was the speaker. And, uh, you know, he wrote the book, The Pursuit of Holiness, and a number of other books. And that he said exactly the same thing. He stood up there and he said, sometimes we don't know what we don't know. You know? And that's the way we are. Isn't that true? It's not just young people. It's not just young men preparing for ministry. It's that very often we don't know what we don't know. And that causes us to be unable then to appreciate more fully the things we have. And part of it is because we don't know enough to have to depend upon God completely. Butch? Okay. That's right. It keeps building, doesn't it? We get sunk deeper and deeper in that hole. All right. Let's get a brief start on chapter 3, and we'll spend next week on it as well. Time. What does time mean to you? Besides the fact that our time, we have five minutes left. Yeah. All right? What does time mean to you? Everything. Everything. That's speaking as an older person. <laughs> opportunity. Opportunity. Time is opportunity. We don't have enough of it. We don't have enough of it. It, come, it goes too quickly, doesn't it? Yes? Okay, we need to manage our time. Yes, Louise? Okay, time means responsibility. It's set apart within eternity. Okay, it's only a part of eternity. What else does time mean to you? Yes? My dad always said time is money. Okay, time's money. Exactly. That's right, yeah. That's right. Okay? That's right. There you go. <laughs> Anna? Time is the limited um, segment of, of history that we are here. Like we're All right. here for a limited time. Okay. Our only real concept of time is the time when we're living. Uh, how do we try to keep track of time outside our lives? Day planners? No, that's in life. What about outside our lives? Before us, <coughs> after us. Okay, we study history. 
We study history to try to figure out time before us and try to figure out how our time fits previous times. We make comparisons. I mean, we're always talking about the good old days, right? Okay? So time. Time is very important. Is there time in God's thinking? Tom says no. If there's no time in God's thinking, why would he establish sun, moon, and stars to mark seasons, okay, for us, for us? What does the scripture say? A day with God is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In other words, the passing of time doesn't affect God. God's not constrained by time. He's timeless. But we are limited and finite, and we're constrained by time. Now, some of you looked at that up here and you said, wait a minute, time, it keeps everything from happening all at once? That certainly was the way it was this week, right? Some of you are saying everything happened at once. You know, we as believers, when we talk about time, we're always thinking of the sweet by and by, right? But what about the nasty now and now? We have to learn how to live not only in preparation for the future, we have to learn how to live now, right? We must, what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 5? We must do what with time? Redeem, Redeem the time. Because the what? That sounds like Solomon. Live for today. Worry about what tomorrow. All right. Who's in control of time? The Lord. God is the one who, he's the creator. He's the controller. And the focus of the text here in chapter 3 is going to be on God's perspective. Notice how it changes. Verse 1 says, under heaven, not under the sun. This phrase, under heaven, occurs only three times in the book. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 3, and the last time is in 3.1. Okay, everything from uh, his uh, residence, under his residence. This is a little bit more expansive than under the sun. This is under heaven. And it's interesting because if you read those three verses, you find that in all three, Solomon speaks indirectly of God's involvement. And what is the point of, dis of describing time-oriented events here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8? The point is that God is in control, nothing happens haphazardly. Nothing is arbitrary. Everything happens in its, in its time by design, as Tom said, by design. All right? That's what's involved. Now, this is the last thing we'll do today, and we'll pick up on this and come back to it. And one of the things I would like you to do is to read through the handouts you got today, make certain you bring it back with you next week, Read through this and, and think about it. There's a series of questions on the back there on the last page for you to uh, think about and meditate on. Warren Wiersbe said that when you come to chapter 3, you first have a look above, and then you have a look within, and then you have a look ahead, and then in chapter 4, you look around. I like that. All right? And it's not just that in this chapter, Solomon says several times, behold, I have seen. He also says twice here, I know. What did he know? How did he know it? 
what is this all about? Read through the handout, read through chapter three of Ecclesiastes, read those questions, come back next week, and we're going to walk through a very, very beautiful, intricate poem, and then we're going to see how Solomon interprets the poem because that's what he does in verses nine and following. He tells us what was intended by this poem in verses one through eight. He interprets it for us. We don't have to guess. It's all there. And there are some deep questions here. And see if during this coming week you could also maybe come back with an example or an illustration of how chapter three became more realized in your life during this coming week. Uh, Share with us how that this chapter did something different for you during the week or how you learned something from something you experienced that helped you to better understand what this chapter is all about. And I won't do what they do to us when we go into the Grand Canyon. When we go into the Grand Canyon, the first thing they do is take away all the watches. But you know, sometimes that might be good because we really find out what time is all about when we're not just watching the clock. Okay, Marvin, before we leave. One of my expertise, my work, my time management. Okay, we got a time manager up here, expert time management. We'll see what he can share with us next week on time. That's bound prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for the time you've given us this morning to wrap up the lesson of chapter two, to talk about balancing our lives and our priorities. And Lord, as we move ahead now, give us a proper understanding of time from your perspective. Teach us how to use it rightly to redeem it, but also teach us the lessons that you have for us that involve time. Show us in this text throughout this week and next Sunday how that our understanding of time now helps us to better understand even time for the future. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen.